Uh, is this microphone working? Can anybody hear me out there? Uh, <clears throat> well, I hope you've had an enjoyable day, but we do believe in working people from morning to night. Uh, and uh, in our case, it's singing for our supper. Uh, so we're going to have a, a discussion uh, <clears throat> with Lars Eric, um, drawing on his experience as the person in charge of Sweden's uh, review uh, as to whether Sweden should sign or not uh, the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, the, the, the Ban Treaty. But I thought we'd start by just putting it in a bit of context in terms of where Sweden is coming from and Sweden's uh, recent history, because I think that helps to explain why this was an issue in Sweden rather than perhaps other uh, European countries. Uh, because on the face of it, <coughs> Sweden and the UK have got many similarities in terms of the, the sort of <coughs> societies we are. We're uh, modern democracies with welfare states uh, in uh, the north of Europe. Um, but one of the big differences, and indeed uh, former imperial powers, Sweden was an imperial power also in the past, uh, but one of the differences, of course, was in the 20th century, uh, the UK went through, uh, took part in two major world wars, and, and Sweden uh, did not. And then subsequently, uh, the UK was a founding member of, of NATO, and, and Sweden <coughs> was not, and remained outside alliance structures really throughout the 20th century. So uh, maybe we could start by, by you giving us a, a sense of how Sweden's overall foreign policy has, has shaped the way in which it looks at, at uh, nuclear weapons and, and defence policy, collective security, uh, more widely. Thank you very much for the invitation. I, I feel very honoured to be here. Um, I should start by saying that we are, of course, uh, a bit humbled by our history hmm. in the sense we are of course, enormously grateful that we have been able to stay outside wars, but it was very close call in the Second World War. Yeah. Uh, we are extremely grateful for all those who fought for our liberty as well. Uh, and after the Second World War, we had uh, the same prime minister for 26 years. <laughs> he was very intrigued by nuclear mm. already from the end of the war. And we actually had uh, uh, active preparations for a nuclear program uh, for a long time. Mm. Uh, and um, we had 5% uh, defense expenditure, GDP, in the 50s. We had one of the largest air forces in the world. We felt very threatened. Mm. We introduced uh, what was then not a public cooperation with the United States and the United Kingdom already from the early 50s, which was then became public only after the Cold War, actually in several governmental reviews. And uh, <clears throat> there were some serious discussions about the utility of having a nuclear weapon for us. And uh, after more than 10 years of discussion, both on the level of civil society, but also uh, 
in the government itself, the prime minister in the center with very few people, confidants with him in this very internal deliberation, came up with the conclusion that it would not be a good thing for us to have nuclear weapons. And when was that? That was basically early 60s. Uh, but it took some years to promulgate this decision and it was done in the accession to the non-proliferation treaty. And uh, the lady who was uh, later our disarmament minister, Alva Myrdal, who was a Nobel Peace Prize laureate to, together with Alfonso Garcia Robles, she was insisting then, in the end of the 60s, early, that the NPT should be a real treaty mm. in two ways. It should uh, commit the nuclear weapon states uh, to a process of disarmament, uh, and it should uh, make sure that no other countries would acquire nuclear weapons. Mm. And she was, as can seen from the archives are now open, she wrote letters of being worried about this. Mm. So I'm actually, in my review, picking up some of her worries. <laughs> uh, uh, and uh, both as regards the risk of further horizontal proliferation to new countries, and also the, the, the question whether the, the uh, uh, TPNW will lead to nuclear disarmament or not. Hmm. So we have a history here. And I, what I've tried to do is to remind the Swedish public and the Swedish government that we do have a legal instrument which, different to many other treaties, actually do bind the P5 uh, to a process of uh, nuclear disarmament in the wider context of disarmament. But many people forget that the Article 6 of the MPT is set in a wider setting than just nuclear. It's, a, it's also a question of what happens in general. Mm. And do you think that that history of active involvement in the NPT uh, formation and indeed promoting it uh, thereafter uh, shaped uh, Sweden's decision to play quite an active and, and perhaps quite supportive, critically supportive role at first with the humanitarian initiative? Would you like to say a little bit about Sweden at the first stages of the humanitarian initiative? Well, <clears throat> first of all, uh, we had a very, very strong uh, focus in the 70s, 80s, and I would say somewhat into the 90s, although we did have another government in the beginning of the 90s, uh, headed by Carl Bildt, who had a somewhat different emphasis on, on some of these issues. Um, focusing on the need to move forward uh, in a context of a broader concept of security mm. than just uh, nuclear, just a, it was a putting together the notion of disarmament and development, for instance, slowly looking at the environmental effects and so on. The humanitarian initiative as such, I date myself, I may be wrong, but I date it very much to the declaration by Kellenberger who was the uh, chairman of the Red Cross, who made a very moving description of this Dr. Junot from uh, 2010. I think he made a long presentation of what it was actually had been like to meet the, the victims of the Holocaust. In, 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 uh, so from there on and with the uh, recognition in the 2010 
MPT review, we had this, uh, uh, we had this uh, humanitarian initiative building up, which uh, gathered a very strong support. I think we're over 150 countries who attended at least one of the three conferences. Uh, and Sweden was somewhat hesitant under mm. the uh, former government uh, whether we should join, but with the new government which came in 2014, Sweden did join the humanitarian mm. initiative. Mm. But I should add that there is some question about the humanitarian initiative because it changed a little bit character over time, um, paving the way for the treaty yeah. debate. And that was particularly in the words, there are experts here about this, uh, that you could not use nuclear weapons under any circumstances. Those three words, which are also to be found in the new treaty, introduced in the Austrian meeting, in the Vienna meeting, I think, made it very difficult for NATO members to mm. participate. Mm. So, so we have, I, I think that it's fair to say that uh, the humanitarian initiative is continues to live, mm -hmm. but many of the proponents of the humanitarian initiatives are associating it very closely with the ICANN campaign, Indeed. Uh, which has made it difficult for some countries to stand by their commitment to the humanitarian language. Mm. And we have seen that recently, for instance, we, we had a discussion about it uh, in an earlier conference in Berlin uh, some weeks back where some people were present. We're, we, we don't, I mean, the, the, the common ground in that meeting was basically we are going to get great difficulties to get a reaffirmation of the humanitarian language from 2010. Mm. It's been contaminated. Mm. So then, Move me forward a little bit about why it is that uh, Sweden clearly uh, was conflicted, uh, rather divided, the, the context which led to your appointment to, for this commission. Why, why was Sweden hesitating before making a decision as to whether or not to sign up to this new treaty? <clears throat> Sweden had uh, uh, made an declaration or explanation of vote already before joining the negotiations in 2016 under the current government saying that we wanted to see this as an inclusive treaty mm. with the nuclear weapon powers if possible participating at least not dis, um, uh, dissuading or, or, or trying to keep saying that we can live without. We, we wanted to see a general treaty which would push disarmament and which would push the MPT, strengthen the MPT mm. in general. And, and uh, this was the explanation of vote before the negotiations started. And uh, during the negotiations, Sweden put forward about 23 amendments. Uh, aiming at making this a reality, they were almost all of them, except some preambular language, uh, rejected, mm. including uh, uh, language uh, requiring the state's parties to be parties to the MPT, parties uh, to the additional protocol, or even parties to the comprehensive test ban treaty. Mm. Which, in our view, and I can associate with the Swedish petition on this, uh, led to uh, unnecessary distance between the MPT and the, and the, and the treaty. Mm. 
So there was a concern, which you expressed in your report, that the, the ban treaty could potentially undermine the NPT. And this was one of the three parts of the terms of references for my, mm. for my, my report. The mm. other two also uh, were controversial in the Parliament. We had six debates in 2017 mm. in, the, in the Parliament, both on the defence and the foreign minister side where there was a discussion of what would happen with our cooperative uh, setup with, uh, with the Nordic countries. We have a Nordic uh, solidarity clause. We have an EU solidarity clause. And we have a strong cooperation, which I have been involved in myself from the start with the Partnership for Peace with NATO, Enhanced Opportunities Partnership, etc. We have strong bilateral cooperation with this country, with the United States. Uh, and we have, outside the NATO framework, an enormously strong uh, cooperation with Finland mm. going out beyond peacetime conditions. So, so mm. that, that was the second problem. And the third problem, which also in the terms of reference, how will this work in practice in Sweden? We mm. try to implement our treaty obligations as a rule, and we want to make sure that we know what to tell our defense companies, what are you allowed to do and not to do, uh, what kind of exercises would mm. be allowed? Uh, what kind of um, uh, scientific cooperation mm. would be allowed? Uh, what happens with dual use, for instance? Mm. Uh, which uh, you should know, those of you who are not aware of it, there are absolutely no definitions whatsoever in the new treaty. So all that work remains. So there was a concern that, it, that activity which was dual use might be legally prohibited? Yes, that, that would be a grey area. What would be... The, uh, what we, so, my... Should I run to my conclusions already now, or do you want me to wait a little bit before going into the technicalities? <laughs> no, no, you, please feel free. No, but I, my main conclusion was that this... And I said that when I started my press conference to, delivering the report, this treaty is not finished. It is not finalized. It doesn't contain any of the precisions that we need to have in it in order to know how it should be implemented. We don't know the process forward for this. Uh, on all the three counts, how will it work with the MPT, with the IEA, with the whole system there? How will it, will it engage? Will it lead to nuclear disarmament? Uh, uh, how will the normative process act? We have spoken earlier today about the counter-campaign, which has been extremely effective, uh, uh, which means that the normative effect of the treaty is very much in question in, in many parts of the world. Uh, second part on the cooperative aspects. I argued <clears throat> that is going to create great difficulties for us, mm. uh, both in, in the defense sector, but also in dual-use uh, areas and for our companies, uh, for, our for, our, for, for the uh, level playing field for our defense uh, and security mm. uh, industrial establishments and our trade. And, uh, uh, and then it will be very difficult to know how to comply with the treaty. Mm. What will the... What will the uh, say when things are being brought to court uh, uh, can can you buy shares in a in a company which uh, is cooperating on nuclear issues and so, 
So all of these, and then people said, uh, the critics, my critics, and I have many critics, said, well, I don't see the, the uh, footnotes here. I want to see how you substantiate mm. your, yeah. well, this is not the way a public inquiry in Sweden is made. You make, as, an in, as, in, as the inquiry chair, you make assumptions and you make judgments and interpretations and you put forward your views. Mm. You don't put a note to all the 200 people I spoke to. Mm. <laughs> because if I had done that, of course, they would not have spoken to me. <laughs> so uh, what I've said publicly, therefore, what I need is to hear from uh, those who I've spoken to, in Sweden at least, what they have said to me, they need to put that on paper as much as they can mm. themselves. Mm. And, uh, um, and what that then happened was something rather extraordinary that we got, and we've got a lot of debate on that as well, that the Commander-in-Chief, the Defence Research Institute, the Defence University, the regulatory agencies, the nuclear industry, all of them, without exception, have supported the conclusions of the inquiry. Mm. And they've done so with great detail. The Commander-in-Chief has written more than 15 pages uh, on, on as a res response to this, saying basically that he cannot guarantee that we can continue our, uh, he cannot implement what the government expects from him in terms of defense planning yeah. and implementation if we sign this treaty in its cur current form. So has Sweden decided not to sign? No, not yet. We are waiting for uh, it's just both the defense minister and the foreign minister uh, have, are, have referred to discussions in the government. Mm -hmm. It's a coalition government with the Green Party, and the Green Party is for mm -hmm. signing. And uh, we wait for their, but it will come shortly, as I said. Right. Very interesting. I think that you've given a real sense of context as to where the, the, uh, the inquiry came from in, in a Swedish environment. Uh, let's throw it open to, to questions uh, you want to put on, on focusing least, most of all on, on this particular initiative, but also on, on some of the Can remarks. I say one thing more? Of course you can. Um, what is very important for me to say, that I'm very proud to have been allowed to pursue this in the best tradition of Swedish public inquiry. I've done this without pressure from anybody. So I've actually, as a lone, uh, you know, although it's so important for my country, I've been entrusted by the foreign minister and by the uh, government to pursue an inquiry which is extremely delicate mm. without pressure from anyone on what I should put in my text. And I, I think th that's extraordinary. I think, I think that's a very important point to make. And... I think, if, if for those of you who haven't read it, it's, a, it's an impressive document which tackles all the, the key issues in this regard. And I think one of the things which uh, developed countries perhaps don't do enough of on public policy is to learn from each other and learn. Every country's experience and constitution mm. is, of course, different. But here, we in the UK can often learn how to improve how we make policy by looking at how other countries... Uh, in similar situations operate and, and indeed vice versa. So who'd like to kick off? Oh, lots of questions. Um, yeah, yeah. 
Lady here, please. Yes, please. 